I didn't turn the microphone on. That's not going to work very well. Anyway, thank you, worship team, as always. Nice to have the drums today, too. Thank you, Reg, for playing. That was very good. Thank you. And I couldn't have picked better songs for the message today. Resurrection Sunday is the most important Sunday of the year. As I said last Sunday, when it was Palm Sunday, when I was a little boy, I used to love Christmas the best, mostly because I got Christmas presents and candy and stuff like that. But now that I'm an adult and I'm a follower of Jesus, this is the most important day of the year. Because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And everything in my life flows from that event 2,000 years ago. Our message today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. And I've entitled the sermon today, What If? What If? Because... Paul, in 1 Corinthians, wants to talk to the Corinthian church about resurrection. And for a little bit, he's going to to play, not a game, but he's going to, to follow an argument to its logical conclusion. And the argument that he's going to follow is, what if Jesus did not rise from the dead? What if, what if it's made up? What if it's just a nice story? It's totally fake. It's bogus. It's not real. It's just, you know, you've got Red Riding Hood. You've got the three little pigs. You've got Jesus rising from the dead. It's just this nonsense story that, you know, you like listening to it, and there's angels in it, and then there's fun stuff. And, oh, that's nice. But no. It's more than that. And so Paul wants to talk to the Corinthian church about this idea. What if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. But before we look at the text, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that even as we pray to you now, that your son Jesus is sitting at your right hand, glorified and exalted because of the work he has completed on the cross on Good Friday. And now he is there at your right hand interceding for us because you raised him from the dead, declaring victory over Satan and death and sin because Jesus was willing to offer the perfect sacrifice for sin because he himself never sinned and but was willing to take on himself our sin so that we could receive his righteousness by faith in him. So today as we look at your word and we look at 1 Corinthians 15, the longest chapter in the Bible about resurrection and we zero in on these verses, verses 12 to 20, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your truth 
that your Holy Spirit would be working on us to teach us, to show us those things that we may have been missing and to to show us how we need to respond to this message today. So cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the title of the sermon today is What If? What if the resurrection is a fake? It's not real. It's nonsense. What if it's just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo? Not real in any way. What's the big deal? Who cares? Why would it matter? So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20 answers that question. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, so what? So what? What does it matter? Now, if you've ever read the book of Corinthians, you know that the Corinthian church, they had a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And we don't have time to go through all of their problems in detail, but they were always fighting in the church. They had problems with, should people get married or not? Um, They were visiting temple prostitutes. They had all these problems with sex. They had problems with food. Should I eat meat offered to idols? Should I not? What if I go to somebody's house? Should I eat that meat? Who knows? And then when it came to their church gatherings, they would celebrate communion and the people at the front of the line would hog all the food and then they would come to the teaching time and everybody would start to talk and it was all this cacophony of nonsense. So this is a church that had lots and lots of problems and Paul has to deal with them all in the first 14 chapters of the book. But when we get to chapter 15, which is the chapter that we want to look at today, not the whole thing, but eight or nine verses from that chapter, Paul has to correct one more problem that this church has. And the problem that they have is they're deeply confused about the resurrection. Now, to be fair to them, in the first century, not unlike today, a lot of people in the first century didn't think that resurrection was possible. In fact, they thought it was impossible. You live your life, you do the best you can, and when you die, you die. That's it. You're done. The end. So we're here for a short time, not a long time, so let's have a good time. That's basically the first century attitude. That's the 21st century attitude pretty much too, right? Now, Paul has to go to them and say, okay, if resurrection is not real, we're in a world of hurt. We're in really big trouble. And so, as I said, we don't have time to go through 1 Corinthians 15. I usually preach long. If I preach 58 verses, we'll be here till next Resurrection Sunday. So I don't want to do all that. That'll be too long. So... I'm going to quickly review the whole chapter in four pieces. The first piece he does in chapter 15 is he reviews the gospel. 
reviews the gospel message with them. That's the first 11 verses. That Jesus came and he died, according to the scripture. He was buried, according to the scripture. And he was raised again, according to the scripture. And then he appeared to several groups of people. That's what he says in the first 11 verses. Now, in verses 12 to 34, and we're not going to even look at that whole section, just a part of that section, Paul discusses this whole idea of the significance of the resurrection from the dead and talks about why it's very, very important. Then, in verses 35 to 49, he describes what the resurrection body will be like. Because if people don't believe in resurrection at all, it's because they think, how can a person who has died, been in the grave, their body has rotted away, how can they have a resurrection body? What is it like? What does it look like? How does it function? And so in verses 35 to 49, he explains all of that. And then finally, in the last nine verses from verse 50 to 58, he talks about how resurrection is vitally important because it is the start of God's final victory over sin and death, and it is the final victory for all believers. So he spends a long time, almost 60 verses. It's the longest section in the whole Bible that talks about resurrection. But I want to zero in on verses 12 to 20 because those are the verses where Paul answers this very specific question. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what's the big deal? Why does it matter? So that's what we want to look at. So the outline for the sermon today is two things. First of all, we're going to look at five consequences of denying Christ's resurrection. And that comes directly from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. We're going to work our way through that actually quite quickly because we want to emphasize not the negative aspect, but we want to emphasize the positive aspect. Five benefits to us of believing Christ's resurrection. When I was in China, one of the favorite phrases students like to use, especially in their essays, was, every coin has two sides. Every coin has two sides. So first of all, we're going to look at the negative consequences if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Then we're going to look at the positive results and the blessings to us because Jesus did rise from the dead. We're going to look at both sides of the coin. So let's start with the negative in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. So I'm going to start with verse 12, and Paul, writing to this church in Corinth, who really is struggling with this idea, is resurrection possible? We don't think it is. And so they got confused about what's happened to the people who have died. Should we baptize for them? And uh, why should I live to please Jesus? All sorts of questions like this. So here's Paul's answer, beginning in verse 12. He says this. Now, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say 
that there is no resurrection of the dead. So his opening question is a, quite a good one, frankly. I've been spending all my time telling you what the gospel is. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus was buried for three days. Jesus rose again the third day. That is the message of the gospel. Believe in him, trust him, follow him, and you will be saved. But now, the heart of the gospel, the message that he has shared with them, one of the most fundamental, one of the key elements to it, they're waffling. They're, they're, they're not on board. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And then verse 13, Paul, Paul follows that to its logical conclusion. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, none at all, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words, Paul is saying to them, think about what you're really saying when you say there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then it must logically follow that Jesus himself did not rise from the dead. If there are no examples, and Jesus is an example, and there are no examples, then this one can't be true. If there is no resurrection from the dead, Jesus did not rise from the dead. Okay, so what's the big deal? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's all right. What's the big problem? Well, he goes on to tell us five problems. Number one, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So problem number one, or consequence number one, of Jesus not rising from the dead, if that is true, then there's no value in preaching. There is no value in sharing your faith. There is no value in believing because it's meaningless, it's vain, it's futile, it's nonsense. If Christ has not been raised, then what Paul is doing and what they are doing is dumb. It makes no sense. He goes on to say in verse 15, something equally troubling. Verse 15 says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. In other words, if Paul is teaching them something that is not true, then not only is Paul a liar, but he is a liar who is lying for God. Not for God's benefit, but he's lying about God. What must God think about him being a liar, telling people untruths about God? We know from reading the New Testament that Paul's entire life 
was dedicated to sharing the gospel. Shipwrecked, beaten, stoned. All of these terrible things that happened to him as he went around uh, the Mediterranean Sea in Asia Minor and Europe and all these places sharing about the gospel. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and the core central message was Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, if none of that is true, Paul is a big fat liar. And he is in big trouble with God because he's lying trying to represent God. That would be a big problem. Verse 16 goes on, verse 16 and 17 go on to indicate another problem. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, he reiterates that point again and says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and your belief is based on Jesus rising from the dead, you are wasting your time. Your faith is futile. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't get you anywhere. And on top of all of that, not only does your faith not get you anywhere, you are still in your sins. Jesus' death did not cover your sin because Jesus did not rise from the dead. That's the logical conclusion that you come to if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Verse 18 lists the fourth problem. Verse 18 says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is absolutely no hope. When you're dead, you're dead. The end, full stop. You're done. That's it. Now, when he says fallen asleep, he doesn't mean people have just fallen asleep. He means people who have died in Christ those who have been followers of Jesus in this life and have passed away. If that is true, that there is no resurrection, those who believed in Jesus but are now dead, they're done. That's it. It's over. It's finished. Because when you're dead, you're dead. If there is no resurrection. Finally, he says in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if all that we're doing, all that we're believing, all that we're asking you to do, if all of that is only for the here and the now, we are of all people most to be pitied. To be put bluntly, Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection and you're following Jesus in this life only, you are a sap. You are a sucker 
you are a loser because it's just, it's just the here and now. Following Jesus just for the here and now doesn't make any sense. You're wasting your time. It will get you nowhere. And all you're doing is putting a big dunce cap on your head saying, I am naive and gullible and foolish. Now that sounds pretty bad. All of those things are based on the idea that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, assuming that to be true. So to summarize what Paul has said in these eight verses, verses 12 to 19, the five consequences of denying Christ's resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, five things, very quickly. Number one, verse 14, our preaching and your faith are in vain. Number two, we are liars because we testified that God raised Christ. That's verse 15. Verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's verse 17. Verse 18, those who have died in Christ have perished. They're done. They're finished. And finally, verse 19, we are of all people to be pitied, to be laughed at, to be the joke of society. Now that presents a pretty bleak picture of what our life would be like if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But the most important verse in this entire section is the next one, which is verse 20. Let me read it to you. Verse 20 says, But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not a guess. It's not a hope. It's not a maybe. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he mentions this, this funny word, first fruits. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died before. What are first fruits? How can Jesus be a first fruit? What is a first fruit? Now, this is not a word that Paul has made up himself. This is a word that comes straight out of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, what was a first fruit? Every year when the people would plant their seeds and grow their crops, at the end, or sorry, at the beginning of the harvest time, they would have something called the Feast of the First Fruits. It's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. And so at the beginning of the harvest, 
the people would begin to harvest their grain, the things that they had grown in their fields. And the first part that they harvest, they would bring to the temple as an offering, as a sacrifice to God, to say, thank you for giving me this year's harvest. Now, Paul takes this idea of the first fruits, the offering of the first part of the harvest, and this is not the only time he uses this word. He uses it as well in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. He uses it again in Romans 11, verse 16. And what he is trying to point out is that there is a link or there is a connection between this first one, this first fruits that get offered, and the whole. The first is not completely separate. It is the beginning of something. It is the first fruits. It is the beginning of the harvest. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, When Jesus rose from the dead, he really accomplished two things. Number one, when he was resurrected, he was rescued from death. Jesus himself was rescued from death. If he had died on the cross and simply stayed in the tomb, how would we know that he accomplished or paid the penalty for our sin? Lots of people can say, I'm going to die. Lots of people in war will give up their lives to save their friends. How are we supposed to know that this worked? That it really did something? And so what Paul is doing by using this word first fruit is he's saying, when Jesus rose from the dead, first of all, it shows that God rescued him from death, that he approved of his sacrifice on the cross and raised him up again. And secondly, because Jesus is the first fruit, he is the beginning of God's renewal of all things. In other words, when Paul uses this term first fruits, he is saying that because Jesus has been resurrected, he is the first one and the rest must follow. He is first, which means there must be a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. Just like when the harvest came, this was the first fruits, but it wasn't the end of the harvest, it was the beginning of the harvest. Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead, but he is not the last. He is the first fruits, he is the beginning of God's renewal of all things. So let me read verse 20 again. Verse 20 says this, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is just the beginning of resurrection. Now, since that is true then, let's remember every coin has two sides. 
let's turn the coin over and say, okay, Paul has shown us Christ did rise from the dead. So since he did rise from the dead, what are the five benefits to us to believe the truth that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead? And so what I want to do is take the five negative things that Paul has said if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. One, two, three, four, five. These are the five bad things that would have resulted. I'm going to flip those and show from other places in the New Testament the five benefits that come from Jesus actually rising from the dead. Number one, we can be forgiven our sins. We can be forgiven our sins. How do we know that? Romans 4.25 tells us that exactly. Jesus was delivered up on the cross, just like we have right up here. Jesus died on the cross for our trespasses, for our mistakes, for our sins that we have done. Jesus died on the cross for those things. He had to do it if we were going to have our relationship restored with God. Somebody had to pay the bill. Somebody had to pay the bill. And Jesus was willing to pay the bill. But notice the second part of this verse. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. In other words, if Jesus simply died on the cross, it would not be enough. It would not be sufficient. It would not be complete. Jesus' death on the cross paid the bill. But when Jesus was raised from the dead and declared victory over death and Satan and sits at the right hand of God to prove that what he had done was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. It showed that he had completed the perfect work. And because he had completed that perfect work, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus pays the bill for us. And our sin is covered. But that doesn't mean we are empty or blank or, to use the Latin, a tabula rasa, a blank slate. That's not what happens. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, his death covers and cleanses and wipes away our sin. But his resurrection says, all of his righteousness all of his goodness is placed on us because he rose from the dead. His resurrection was for our justification so that we could be declared righteous before God. He paid the bill and then gave to us his righteousness. 
And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our wrong. He sees Jesus' righteousness. That's what resurrection accomplishes. Seen from a slightly different angle, Hebrews 12 verse 2 says the same thing. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew. Pastor Nick talked about this on Friday. Jesus knew where he was going. God had a plan for Jesus to die on the cross. It was not a plan B. It was not because something went wrong. It was designed before the foundation of the world for Jesus to come and to die on the cross. And Jesus was willing to endure the cross and endure the shame so that the after thing could happen. And that was so that in paying the bill for our sin, he could be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He could be resurrected. He could be glorified to sit at God's right hand to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what Jesus accomplished on the cross worked. It worked. He did everything that was asked of him to do. He finished the work and God raised him and glorified him to say, yes, you did it right. And because you did it right, we can trust and know that if we believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Number two, if Jesus did, I don't even like to say if, since Jesus did rise from the dead, our faith is not in some fairy story or some made-up nonsense. Our faith is well-founded. This is not blind faith. We are believing in something that the Bible makes very clear. John 20, verse 31, the end of John's gospel, the story of the life of Jesus. He says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Belief in Jesus leads to life. John has written all of this material to give us evidence, to give us proof, to show us that what Jesus came to do, the Old Testament predicted it. Jesus did it. Jesus lived it. And if we are willing to believe what Jesus has done for us, when we believe, we can have resurrection life in his name. Later, the same writer writing a letter to the churches. 1 John 5.13, John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not just life for now, although 
That is good too. But it's not the end. These things are written so that you will know that you have life eternal. How can we have life eternal? Because Jesus is the first fruits. He is the beginning of God's renewal of all things. If he has risen from the dead, then if we believe in Jesus, we too have eternal life. Number three, since Jesus rose from the dead, when we preach the gospel that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, that he died as my substitute on the cross, that he was buried for three days in a tomb, that he was raised again and is seated at God's right hand. Since all those things are true, then the gospel that we preach is true. So what the apostles preach, what we preach here at Arendelle Bible Chapel, what is preached all over the world when the gospel is preached is true. Jesus says it of himself, John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do we come to the Father? By believing in Christ's death and his resurrection and to follow after him. Jesus is the truth. 1 John 5.20 says truth and true and true and truth over and over again. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. When I was a student of Don Carson, he liked to talk about things that were truly true. And Jesus is truly true. He is truly true. The message of Jesus is true. Jesus is true. His resurrection is true. And because his resurrection is true, we can have eternal life if we put our faith and our trust in him. Number four, the other side of the coin says, we should be pitied. We're suckers. We're saps. We're losers if we believe in the resurrection. But since the resurrection is true, the other side of the coin is, we are to be envied. People should want what we have. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says it this way. The very end of this chapter on resurrection, Paul's conclusion is this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that in the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. You are not 
wasting your time to follow Jesus. Everybody in life wants a purpose. Everybody wants their life to mean something, to to do something important, to have value, to make an impact on the world. Lots of people do different things. They put up statues of themselves. They give a lot of money to have their name on a building, and they think that that's going to make things last for a long time. But the only thing that really lasts is putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, it lasts. It lasts forever. So our labor is not in vain. Writing to to the Corinthians later, Paul says something similar. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says... This light momentary affliction, talking about living this life to please Jesus, the problems that come with that, the difficulties that come with that, the, just all the things that can go wrong in this life because we have put our faith in Thank you. So, if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, the light and momentary affliction that we have because of that, the suffering that we have, Jesus had suffering. As followers of Jesus, we will have suffering. So what does he say? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, following Jesus has eternal value. If I live to be 125 years old, which I will not live to be, and let's let's represent 125 years, as the distance between my two fingers. That's 125 years. How long is eternity? My arms aren't big enough to measure that. You'd have to go around the world and around the world and around the world and around the world and around the world forever to measure the distance of eternity. How can there be eternity for us if there is no resurrection? Eternity is there. It's available to us because Jesus is the first fruits. He paved the way for us. So the light and momentary affliction that we experience now when we put our faith and trust in Jesus is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison because Jesus rose from the dead. Lastly, number five, there is more than this life. When you look around 
and you see how other people live their lives. They live their lives in complete reversal of reality. What do I mean by that? People often live and act as if things of this world will last forever and people are temporary. People live and act as if the things of this world are permanent and that people are temporary. When in fact, if Jesus, since Jesus rose from the dead, things of this world are temporary and people last forever. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14 puts it this way. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away in Jesus, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This life is not the end. There is eternity to be spent with Jesus. I hope I can get through this next part. When I was preparing this on Thursday, I had to get three Kleenexes out. I don't have any Kleenexes up here, but I'm going to try and get through this story without whispering. Okay. I met my wife in 1992. And when Cindy was growing up as a little girl, she had a wonderful grandmother named Margaret. Cindy's growing up life wasn't the best. You can ask her about that. But her growing up life wasn't the best. But she had a grandmother who, first of all, loved Jesus and loved her. And when Cindy's life was not as good as it should have been and could have been, her grandmother was there for her with the love of Jesus. And it wasn't until university that Cindy came to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior. But her grandmother in the 1980s got cancer. And Cindy was so concerned about her, she went and visited her in the, in the hospital to share the gospel with her. And her grandmother, in hearing what Cindy had to say to her, was already a Christian. And she became concerned about Cindy and she began to share with Cindy the gospel. Thinking that maybe Cindy didn't know what it meant to know Jesus. But in the 1980s, Cindy's grandmother passed away. And I never got to meet her. I too had a grandmother. Her name is Ruby, like our Ruby. And my grandmother was the spiritual rock in her family. She and my grandfather, who was a Christian, but he was, he was a, I would call a, a good Christian, but not a standout Christian. 
My grandmother was a standout Christian. She had six children. She raised them all. She played the piano at church on Sunday. She taught Sunday school. She did all of these things. She prayed for her family. And today, my mother is a strong Christian because of her. And my mother, in my life, had tremendous influence that led me to Jesus because of what my grandmother did for her. My uncle was a missionary in India for 25 years. My grandmother had a tremendous impact on her family. But she got Alzheimer's and she passed away in 1989. I didn't meet Cindy until 1992. But because Jesus died on the cross and God has raised him from the dead, Someday, Cindy will be able to introduce Margaret to me, and I will be able to introduce Ruby to her. Because unlike the people that Paul is writing to who had no hope, we have a hope because there is more to this life than just this life. And it's rooted and founded on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So what is the application for us today? Number one, let me ask you a question. Have you put your faith, have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid the bill. He paid the penalty for your sin. Jesus was raised for your salvation. There's not a more perfect day than Resurrection Sunday for you to give your life to Jesus. He is ready to live in you. He is ready to give you new life, to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you can enjoy relationship with him now and forever. Have you put your faith in trust in Jesus? If you would like to do that, please come and talk to Pastor Nick. Please come and talk to me after the service. We would love to share with you how you can do that. If you have already Put your faith and trust in Jesus. What should I be doing now? Two things. Number one, focus on the heavenly goal. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. We looked at this a couple of months ago, talking about our citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven if we know Jesus. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What is the power that enables him to subject all things to himself? It is his resurrection power. His resurrection power enables him to subject all all things to himself. If that is the case, what did I say before? Things are temporary. 
people are permanent. Focus on the heavenly goal. Shape your values based on resurrection and eternity. Put your investment in the things that will last. Finally, that's off in the distance. Our values now affect where we will go. But finally, I want to emphasize, we need to seek to please Jesus now. It's not enough to wait for the eternal weight of glory and just sit here and do nothing. Seek to please Jesus now. Colossians 3, 1 to 4 says it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Live now to please Jesus, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Since Jesus rose from the dead, he has taken our sin, he has spoken the truth, he has given us eternal life, and he asks us to please him now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you as we prayed at the beginning of this message. Thank you that your son Jesus is sitting at your right hand right now, interceding for us because he was raised from the dead, because he was willing to offer his life the perfect sacrifice. Even though he himself had never sinned, he was willing to take the punishment for my sin, for our sin, because he loves us so much. And because he was willing to do that, you have put your stamp of approval on his work and you have raised him from the dead and you have seated him at your right hand so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that he is the first fruits, that he is not the end of resurrection, he is the beginning. And that because of that, we have hope for today and tomorrow and the future. That we will see loved ones who have put their trust in you years ago and have gone to be with you now. We will see them again. We have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. So again, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you, doesn't know Jesus, that they would make that right today, that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus, both for now and for eternity. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.